Hello there. Servus. My name is Aishan Wade, and you're listening to uh, a sick man's edition of This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they painted the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I have for you today? We have uh, the recent elections in Taiwan, and we'll be talking about what they mean for the country and the geopolitics surrounding it. We'll be talking about Iran announcing, uh, or Iraq, excuse me, announcing that they'll begin the removal of U.S. and coalition troops from their country. And then we'll be talking about uh, various industrial product, not products, but in industrial developments happening in Norway and China and how they correspond. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have a British high commissioner in Pakistan or an envoy for short. Oh, that's what I'll be calling it, an envoy. Uh, This British envoy in Pakistan has visited the province of Kashmir. Now, this is a disputed province, uh, freeways between Pakistan, India, and a little bit of China up in the north. But we're mainly focusing on Pakistan and India here. India claims the whole province to be theirs, and of course the Pakistanis do the same, just about. There's slight differences in the claims, but India and Pakistan have like the biggest claims to the whole thing. China has claims to like a a smidgen up top, and well, no one's really able to challenge them, but why exactly? This has caused like a, a, a fuss in the Indian parliament. And understandably so, because why does your envoy to Pakistan need to take a visit to a disputed region? <clears throat> why does he have to do that? Like, e- even if we go out on a limb and say it's about rare earth, right, and all these things, your envoy doesn't need to go to where the rare earth is. You can just negotiate an arrangement with the government in question that you hope to get the rare earth from. So the only way I can see this is as a, a deliberate provocation of the Indians. And looking back, you know, when we sort of take that 30,000 foot view, I remember all the, that fuss that happened. Oh. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you remember a few months back, then there was that uh, when there was that Sikh separatist, those Sikh separatists who were assassinated in Canada by the Indian government, and this was sort of put on blast by the Canadians, and then uh, another incident like this happened before, and now you see this sort of deliberate, uh, in my view, a deliberate attempt to try to make an an enemy out of the Indians because India doesn't want to go all in on the anti-China coalition. They don't want to go all in on this uh, contain this new containment policy, so to speak, of the multipolar world, but is instead they're, you know, using the rise of the multipolar world to their own advantage as they should. And so, what we have here 
with this envoy going to a disputed territory for no reason, mind you. It, it just seems to me like another deliberate provocation and it's not gonna it's not gonna achieve anything other than make the indians very upset and plus if you're going to do this like but beyond the obvious an envoy doesn't need to be going to a disputed region in a country even if it was that important why would you back the pakistanis on this when you could back the Indians on this, they have a billion, they have a billion and a half people. Their economy is uh, much larger. Their military is larger. Uh, they are, by all accounts, the bigger power here. Even if it was that important, why would you go out of your way to get on the bad side of the clearly superior power here? And that's not me saying India's just going to steamroll Pakistan and Pakistan can never just not put up a fight. But it's clear who's the bigger here, who who's who the senior partner in any relationship between India and Pakistan would be. It'd be India. Why would you go out of your way to send an envoy to a disputed region between two countries and piss off the bigger power? It doesn't make any sense. But just... You know, keep that in the back of the mind as we watch the deliberate deterioration of relations between the West and all the other countries on the on the face of the earth who don't want to go along with U.S. hegemony and don't want to go along with containing the multipolar world because the rise of the multipolar world is in their interests. So, and India is now uh, become a target of that. So expect them to sort of double down on their new friends and their new partners uh, as we move forward into the new year. Expect them to double down on BRICS, double down on the India Mideast Europe corridor, and expect them to double down on their own projects that they have going independently of United States and Europe. Expect all that, and especially expect them to act uh, less favorably towards our initiatives, especially as we go into the death spiral of the empire this year. So there's that. We also have, uh, speaking of the empire, in Oregon, the Oregon Supreme Court has turned down a case to take Trump off the ballot. Again, this is something the Supreme Court needs to weigh in on. They they did the right thing here. It's a bit shocking that it was Oregon of all places. But the Supreme Court has to weigh in on this to shut this, this nonsense down with, oh, we don't like political candidate X. We're just going to keep him off the ballot. Oh, we don't like this candidate over here. We're just going to take him off the ballot. Oh, we don't like our political opposition. We're just going to take him off the ballot. It, it, it'll be very healthy to get that clarity from the Supreme Court on this, assuming they rule the right way, of course. <laughs> And I, I mean, there, there is a right way. You, you have to let the people choose. Yeah. But I digress. And plus, this shouldn't be up for, what, individuals, you know, secretaries of state, state-level secretaries of state and district attorneys. This shouldn't be decisions made by them if it's going to be made at the state level at all. It should be made by the legislature because, constitutionally speaking, the legislatures are the ones who get to make the election laws. It. Yeah, the Supreme Court has to weigh in on this, and they're going to. I'm anticipating that they're going to, you know, slap this down. People would, and Trump's going to be allowed on the ballot. 
probably, and that's going to have derivative effects as well, keeping uh, states like, again, Missouri from keeping, uh, from barring Biden from being on the ballot. And it may even have um, positive effects for the Robert F. Kennedy campaign, uh, allowing him to get onto the ballot. So we'll see where that goes with the Supreme Court, but this is definitely something that they have to weigh in on. We have Lloyd Austin uh, being treated for prostate cancer. And no one noticed that he was gone. Uh, Certainly not Biden. So where exactly is our leadership here? And that's sort of the the million-dollar question that's been opened up with the sudden revelation that this guy's been hospitalized. And it's like, wait, wait, hold on now. Who's been running the show? Oops. And there's, there's no leadership. There's no leadership. Dare I say there's more of a power vacuum than leadership going on in Washington. But you know what? You know what? You know what? That's perfectly fine. It just makes it easier for us, the people, to overthrow them. And, you know, I welcome the infighting in Washington. I don't welcome the consequences of that. But, you know, you, you have to take what you get. If they're divided and fighting each other, then they can't focus on stopping us from pushing, pushing them out of power. It all works in our favor in the end. And so for now, we just get to watch the show, uh, which becomes more clownish by the second. Like, uh, and and let's just let's just stop and think for a second. This guy's been hospitalized, and no one. Not only did no one notice that he was hospitalized until he until he made it public that he was, but nothing changed from him being absent. It's like, his absence had no negative effect on the status of our global deteriorating situation. Him being there was an irrelevancy, and him being gone was an irrelevancy, which says a lot about just how much you know actual weight and influence that he's had on what's been transpiring. He's a nobody. And he could just be removed and taken out of the equation and nothing changes. I mean, because are we really going to sit here and say that had he been there, the U.S. and the British wouldn't have fired off these missiles against the Houthis? And that's a, another story for the rapid fire news. We, we have the U.S. and British firing off uh, missiles from their warships in the Red Sea at the Houthis. Would Lloyd Austin... Had he not been hospitalized, would he have actually stopped that or would he have greenlit it anyway? It, it, we could dig into this all day, and but we'll just jump to the conclusion here, which is <laughs> that he is an inconsequential figure. And unfortunately, it took this unfortunate event happening to him. Like I do not wish prostate cancer upon people, uh, but it really did expose that he's not in charge of anything so who is he, he's the secretary of defense if if him being absent has no effect it, it like it it's like an independent variable our foreign policy and the status of our position overseas is an independent variable from him it, it like it doesn't matter what he does it that just doesn't change it's like okay well if he means literally nothing then what is he there for? And that, that's just uh, prognostication. 
uh, is it a little mean? Of course it is. I mean, we, we don't, I, I don't take joy in beating down on somebody who just got, you know, who's battling prostate cancer, but he's a government official and it's important to look at these things and look at our government in this way. But that's that. Uh, we have a power struggle and he's certainly not the center of it. He's not even close to the center of it. He's not even close to the, to the real decision making. Uh, but alas, this is what we're dealing with as we slip and slide into war, uh, especially as they, they go for this this grand war against Iran and, and try to fight everybody at the same time. We, ha- we also have Hezbollah firing drones on Israeli military bases. Uh, these are sort of kamikaze drones, so to speak. So it's like it, it's sort of like a, a low yield precision guided bomb. That's what a kamikaze drone basically is. A low-yield precision guided bomb. So, consider it a missile, but we'll call it a drone. All right. So, this is where we're at. Israel's being put under siege. Uh, strategically, with the Houthis closing off the Red Sea, and even, you know, more closer to home with the Hezbollah just firing rockets across the border casually, depleting Israel's air defense networks. And Israel, in the meantime, doubles down on its own siege in Gaza. And if you haven't heard, the death count in Gaza has now reached about 24,000. 24,000. I've already, at this point, come around to the position that they're not even attempting to fight Hamas. They're just killing everyone that they can get their hands on. Which is evident by the fact that more women and more children have died than adult men in Gaza, roughly proportionate to the number of women and children compared to men in Gaza to begin with. So the, the fact that the, the casualties are line, the demographic breakdown of the casualties and the deaths specifically are lining up with the demographic breakdown of Gaza itself means that you're not even trying. And then they have the gall to say that every adult man that has died was Hamas, when that is mathematically impossible. And we went over this. There's Even with the high-end numbers that we use on this podcast, where there's like 60,000 Hamas, that's the number we run with on the podcast, everyone else says 40,000 or less. Even with our, the high-end numbers that we're using, that would still mean that only one in 12 people, one in 12 adult men are Hamas. So even if you killed only adult men, only one out of every 12 would actually be Hamas. So it's roughly 6,000 dead adult men right now, or uh, almost 8,000 approaching. But if if there's 6,000 dead adult men, because I'm using the six to make the the math easier to understand here. If there's 6,000 adult men dead, then that means that only 500 of those, mathematically speaking, would be Hamas, because it's, it's 1 in 12, not 1 in 6. 6,000 dead, 1 in 6 would be 1,000. 1 in 12 would be 500. So if there's 6,000 dead adult men, only about 500 of those would be Hamas. 
and the reason you you don't just say oh they could they could potentially have higher lethality rates and and more efficiency in killing Hamas the reason you can't give Israel that benefit of the doubt is because they are just indiscriminately bombing all the civilians if it was only men then maybe you could make that case but they're not killing only men in fact they're killing more women and more children than adult men to the point where again the demographic breakdown of the deaths roughly matches the demographic breakdown of Gaza itself which uh, just blows open and blows down the idea that they're even trying to be dis- anything other than indiscriminate in their bombings. So you can't give them that benefit of the doubt. And if you're just uh, killing the civilian populace, it, without discretion, you cannot make the claim to be trying to mitigate civilian losses. Without discretion, you cannot make the claim that you're only targeting Hamas when the reality points to the opposite. You're just killing the civilian populace of Gaza with no intention, not even the intention of trying to kill Hamas and only Hamas. Like, and if that's your goal, to just kill the populace of Gaza, then that is genocide. That is genocide. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm late to the game, so to speak, in coming around to that position. South Africa has is so far advanced in that position that Israel committed committing genocide that they have put together a case and brought it to the ICJ uh, if I'm not mistaken not not the ICC the ICJ two separate uh, and that'd be the International Court of Justice South Africa and their genocide case against Israel has officially begun and it's actually been sort of fast tracked instead of put on a, a back burner like most other cases like this are, which says a lot about the, the, the urgency of this one, the perceived urgency of this by the people uh, running the council and the court. And likely it says a lot about uh, how convincing uh, their case seemed to be, at least on paper. Now I've seen some preliminary lists of the number of countries supporting this this case against Israel, which will be damning, which will kill the legitimacy of the Israeli state in the process. Um, and again, this is another one of those checkmate moments. Because I talked about Arabia putting forth that peace proposal, and that's checkmate. This is another checkmate, right? The genocide case against Israel. Because if they are found guilty, and I don't see a world in which they are, through any legitimate means, not found guilty at this point in the game, right? The the, the court would delegitimize itself if it did not find Israel guilty. Like uh, that, South Africa went into this case knowing that they would win in any in in any legitimate court. They know that if they were in any legitimate court, that they're going to win this case and. We will find out very quickly if the ICJ is indeed a legitimate court or if it is controlled by a higher power that is more aligned with Israel than with justice. So we're going to see that that'll be a very interesting thing. Uh, And that's uh, a possibility brought up by the, the Duran, where the U.S. does have massive influence over these institutions. And it's possible that we could try to use our leverage over them 
to cover for Israel like we've been doing. And But in the process, if Israel really is committing a genocide, and they are, and we sway the decision to keep the, the jurors or the keep the jurors or the the judges from ruling uh, from delivering that guilty verdict against Israel well then that would delegitimize the court so we we could have our way and protect Israel and we would just kill the legitimacy of this institution but for the time being we'll see how this goes as it moves forward but here's a, a sort of preliminary list of countries who are in favor of this case we have Bangladesh, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, uh, the Comoros, Cuba, Djibouti, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Libya, Malaysia, the Maldives, Namibia, Nicaragua, Pakistan, uh, Palestine, obviously, uh, St. Vincent, uh, I'd never heard of that one. We have Syria, Turkey, Venezuela, and then we have two organizations, the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, that's between the two of them, over 50 countries. Over 50 countries. But let me go to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, because there's overlap between that and the two, with more being in, in this one than the other. So that's 57 states if the organization of islamic cooperation uh backing this case is representative of all of its members that's 57 countries who have essentially put their backing via this institution 57 countries who put their backing behind this case against israel this is going to be damning this is going to be damning it's going to be bad it's going to be ugly because in order to prove this, you have to put up the evidence of atrocities committed by Israel, which means that the whole narrative surrounding Hamas and the Palestinians as the savages, that will come that will be forcibly torn down by the reality that is Israel being not just the dominant military force here. Uh, uh, dominant in terms of their, the power that they have and the fact that they are the ones abusing the Palestinians, not the other way around. The whole Israel is the victim narrative is going to come crumbling down very, very quickly. And it's going to turn, it's going to change a lot of minds, even in the United States. Because when you'll, you'll get the diehard politicos who will sit there and simp for Israel till the day that they die, you know, the Ben Shapiro's. But when regular people get their eyes on that footage, when regular people are able to compare and contrast what Israel's doing in Gaza to what happened on October the 7th, and mind you, remember Israel made multiple attempts to try to take out the internet in Gaza so that you couldn't see what was happening? Yeah. When people are able to see this, no amount of browbeating, no amount of slander, oh, you're... You're you're uh, you're you're anti-Semitic. You hate Jews. That no amount of no amount of that is going to be able to stop what's coming. And that is the delegitimation of the Israeli state. And that is the real danger that Israel runs, playing the game that they're playing in Gaza. And we, I said, 
Uh, I've said as much since the beginning of this round of fighting. I've said that if Israel didn't make a change of course uh, years ago, I said that if Israel did not make a change of course, that they it would eventually lead them down a path similar to this, where they would end up in uh, a configuration with all their neighbors. And I said it that they cannot win against all their neighbors. And now here they are, being put on trial before the, the entire world. A trial that they cannot win, mind you. It's going to be a very, very, very rough year for Israel and the United States. But there's still going to be a United States on the other side of this. I'm not certain there's going to be another, an Israel on the other side of this. I'm, I'm really not. I'm really not. And before we transition into the meat of this episode, we have Chris... Krispy Kreme Christie, and I'm sorry, I know it's, it's just so easy, but uh, Chris Christie has dropped out of the race, leaving his highly contested uh, 70, oh, wait, wait, 7, oh, no, 0.7% up for grabs. Now, will that change anything? No. But what was funny was the the hot mic he had where he said that uh, DeSantis was going to lose, Haley was going to get smoked, and that Trump was going to win. Now, that's the most I've agreed with Christie since I heard him speak at the second Republican debate. But alas, that's the rapid fire, and let's get into the meat of this episode, shall we? So, let's see, let's see, the first story of the meat of this episode is the election in Taiwan. Election in Taiwan. So, Lai ching Tay of the Democratic P- uh, Progress Party, there we go, uh, the DPP, wins the Taiwanese presidential election, which was a bit of a shocker to me, uh, given the, the sort of pattern of Taiwanese electoral politics, or it's so, similar to the Republican-Democrat dynamic in the United States, where one party will be in charge for like eight years, the other party will be in charge for like eight years, and the other one comes back. <clears throat> That's how it was in Taiwan, and we were entering the period where the Kuomintang were going to come in, uh, and they actually showed up a, a little bit earlier when, when you saw those um, regional, provincial elections, and the Kuomintang did very well. It signified to me, at least at the time, uh, that the Kuomintang were going to do very well in these upcoming elections. But that has not quite been the case. Although for a reason that I could not have anticipated. Uh, so let me just break down the result of this and then I'll sort of elaborate on my reason. So the DPP, uh, the power that was in, the party that was in power before, uh, now has won the election with 40% of the vote. The Kuomintang got about 33%. However, if you put 40 and 33% together, that is 73. So where'd the other uh, 27% or so go? Well, it went to the Taiwan People's Party, the TPP, which is very uh, ironically named, given the TPP, we associate that with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but this is the Taiwan People's Party. They got the rest of the vote. At 26%, 
which puts them roughly on par with both of the other major parties. Like the vote is almost split evenly three ways. It just so happened that just a little bit more went to the DPP. And this split of votes, which it, it seems the majority of which, considering that, remind you, these guys were running against the uh, Progress Party. The majority of this energy, see, by my, you know, just outside looking in, probably would have gone into the Kuomintang, which would have propelled the Kuomintang to a victory, you know, assuming uh, that I'm correct in that assessment. But the TPP got about an almost, well, they, they got a quarter of the vote. I'll, I'll be I'll be straightforward. They got a quarter of the vote, but they weren't that far off from what the other parties got. And they, they really shook things up. And as a result, the Kuomintang, who in, in any other election probably would have won uh, handedly, they lost and allowed for a sort of third consecutive term for the ruling party, which is the, the Progress Party, the DPP. Now, the DPP is uh, sort of the, the status quoists with slight leanings towards independence. The Kuomintang wants more reconciliation with China. However, from what I've gotten, from what I've gotten, the People's Party is more pro-independence than even the DPP were. Uh, but they also they also have the sort of. Uh, anti-establishment uh, angle to them, so that there's a there's a lot of um, political factions that go into the making of this the success this success for this party. So I can't really just lump them in. Although I I have simplified the other two to being like pro-China, anti-China. It's a lot more complicated than that. But for the purpose of the geopolitics, I'm just breaking it down that way. But the result is that we have the status quoists, and the status quoists are, well, they're in favor of deepening relations with the United States. Now, that is, well, while it might make sense for them to do, it is not the answer that the Chinese were looking for in this election. Now, why, now why do the Chinese have to be accounted for here? Why the Chinese have to be kind of for here? Well, because this is an island, 110 miles away from their coastline, an island that is being actively being weaponized by the United States against China. And the ruling party, if we sort of take a look back over the years, the ruling party has allowed the Speaker of the House of the United States to show up unannounced and give a little uh, speak and meet with the president of this, as the as far as the Chinese consider this rebel province, a foreign dignitary, the third in line for the presidency, coming to meet with the leader of the Confederacy. I mean, the, this rebel province. I slipped that in there so you understand how the Chinese feel about this, because there is a, a very strong inclination on you know the American side of things to just ignore how everyone else feels about these things and just call them wrong for feeling certain types of ways, and then to be surprised when they act on the way that they feel, yeah, I don't think that's very constructive. 
we should be well aware of how the Chinese feel about this. And the way the Chinese feel about this is as I've laid out to you. It'd be like the British sending envoys to go meet with the Confederacy while we're at war with the Confederacy trying to take back our country and put our country back together. That's how the Chinese see this, right? And now in that analogy, we are the British, we the United States, we're the British. Taiwan is the Confederacy and China is the United States. This is not the answer the Chinese were looking for. Now they have repeated over and over and over again that they reserve the right to use force to reunify Taiwan with the mainland. Oh, and over again. Now they've always maintained that their position is that they want peaceful reintegration. But the part, the ruling party that has now gained this, this third term has been drifting and drifting and drifting away from that possibility. Drifting further and further and further into the U.S. sphere of influence, going more deeper and deeper and deeper into the arms of the armed manufacturers of the United States. That's not in China's interests. And unfortunately for the Taiwanese, their domestic politics is a matter of foreign policy for China. To a, a much greater degree than it is for the United States. Like we we pretend that Taiwan is as important to us. And we, we are very good at LARPing, mind you. But for China, Taiwan actually is important. And just like how we, to use another analogy, we would not allow Cuba to allow, say, China or Russia, Soviet Union, what have you, we would not allow Cuba to set up naval bases for foreign powers like that or missile sites on their island to be used and weaponized against us or spy bases or what have you. The Chinese aren't going to stand by and allow that to happen with Taiwan either. And unfortunately, with situations like this, you get conflicts between the interests of great powers and the interests of the interests of great powers conflicting with the sovereignty of smaller nations. And unfortunately, the sovereignty of the smaller nation usually has to give way. Something's got to give, and it's usually not the great power. So when we look at these elections, what we're looking at is what might potentially be Taiwan's last election. Because the ruling party, in their endorsement of more closer relations with the United States, in their actions in allowing U.S. dignitaries to come to the island and to act as if Taiwan was an independent country, which they are de facto, they're de facto an independent country, but legally speaking, they're not. Because they, they and the Chinese signed the One China policy, and we switched up our recognition from Taiwan to the People's Republic. Legally speaking, Taiwan is not an independent country. They're not a country at all, legally. And this is international law. But functionally, they are an, an, they're an independent country. 
but to act in that way would to be in breach of international law, specifically, again, the one China policy. The way in which they're acting, allowing foreign dignitaries to come to your country, that's what an independent country does, not a rebel province. That's what an independent country does, not a country that is legally bound to another country who is recognized as being the sovereign. The problem here is that with the re-election of the ruling party, the Democratic Progress Party, China has basically been given confirmation that they're going to get more of the same with Taiwan. And more of the same is more encroachment of U.S. forces and U.S. military assets and more encroachment and mission creep of the United States towards supporting and backing a Taiwanese independence movement and towards us, uh, this containment policy of China, using Taiwan as the sort of keystone for that. More of the same is a threat to Chinese national security. And that's what this election means for China. So China this year may just make the attempt to go for this island. Now, I talked about this multiple times in the past. Uh, I used that one, um, that one memo released from that Air Force General uh, Mahan, I think that was his name, uh, the, that Air Force General Mahan, who talked about how he expected a war between the U.S. and China in 2025. And I said, why would they wait until after both the Taiwanese and U.S. elections? Why would they wait until after the 2024 cycle? when both of them have reconsolidated and reconfigured their politics, when they could attack in 2024, when they're off balance and off guard. We're going to see that now. We're going to see that. Because it's 2024. Taiwan has had their election cycle. The U.S. is still in its election cycle. It's the beginning of the year. So you know how they... they when people talk about this, they talk about there's there's two times of year when they can attempt the crossing of the strait. It's like sometime in spring, I think it's April, and then one time, excuse me, one time in the fall, sometime around like August, when they can cross. Well, now the Taiwanese election being up front <laughs> at the very beginning of this year, China has the rest of the year to decide which one of those intervals they might try to go for if they're going to go for them at all. Because there's this, this heavy, heavy, heavy assumption that the Chinese are going to be constricted and constrained to only attacking Taiwan during those periods of time when if you're a Chinese general or someone planning this out, you're going to make your plans and you're going to strike sometime outside of that frame when they're not going to be expecting you to come to get the element of surprise and then you just show up one day when the weather's good enough. Because there are plenty of days throughout the rest of the year when the weather conditions, namely the water, the, you know, the tides, there are plenty of other days throughout the scattered throughout the year when it's going to be good enough to send an army across. It's just a matter of picking one. 
if the Chinese decide to go for the Blitzkrieg, I'm not convinced they will. They'll just go for the siege. <laughs> and then it doesn't matter. They'll just go for the siege. They're not going to wait until 2025 for this. They've been given the confirmation that they're going to get more of the same by the result of Taiwan's election. And now they have an, the rest of the year, the United States, their biggest back, Taiwan's biggest backer, the, for the rest of this year, Taiwan's biggest backer is going to be in the middle of a vicious, <laughs> a vicious election cycle. The craziest election of our lifetimes is what it's going to be. We're going to be in no position to really do anything. Anything we do can and will be used against the sitting president. They know that Trump wants a deal. But the last thing they want to be doing is fighting a war with Taiwan when Trump comes to office. Because then that, that gets in the way of making deals. They want to get to the business of doing business with the United States. And Trump wants to do the same with them. Taiwan will get in the way of that. So they will be on the clock. But they will likely go for the siege or a very swift blitzkrieg in the middle of in the middle of the year when no one's expecting them to show up and they'll just pop up and then it's over. Either one can happen. My bet is on the siege, but I would not discount the possibility that they go for the blitzkrieg in some unspecified moment in time outside of the, you know, the boundaries of Oh, oh, they can only attack at these uh, moments in the year because everyone knows that. The Taiwanese know that. Why would you attack when your enemy knows that you're capable of coming? But I digress. This may have been the Taiwan's last election. And it's unfortunate that it, it goes down this way, that these things happen, that we can't just we can't just live in peace. Countries can't just determine for themselves how they're gonna how they're gonna live and how they're gonna function. But to be fair, Taiwan technically, you know, legally speaking, is not a country. But the crisis, if we're gonna trace it back to its origins, goes back to us not allowing the Taiwanese, specifically the Kuomintang, more and more specifically, us intervening in the Chinese Civil War, and keeping the the Kuomintang from losing completely. The PRC was going to cross the Straits. And they were going to keep crossing the Straits until they, they took down the Kuomintang. The Civil War should have been ended by now. But we got in the way. And like all of our forever wars, this one too will come undone. Except this one's been allowed to go on for so long that there is an entire nation on the other side who will be wiped from the earth when it all is said and done. But alas, that's how these things go. When push comes to shove and something's gotta give, you have a conflict between the interests of great powers and the sovereignty of a smaller state, it's usually the smaller state who has to give. And unfortunately, Taiwan's in that, uh, unfortunately giving for Taiwan will likely mean the end of even the idea 
of Taiwanese sovereignty. They're not going to get a Hong Kong treatment because the Chinese just ended the Hong Kong treatment and the Macau treatment. It's going to be one China, one system now, instead of one China, two systems. And Taiwan's going to be a part of that one system. And we will now sit and wait for the seemingly inevitable. Seemingly inevitable. It's only a matter of time before the Chinese come now. At least that's my assessment. It could be that the Chinese are just going to sit there and look, which would surprise us all. But <laughs> I'm not entirely certain about that one. So we, we will see. I believe, I believe this may have been Taiwan's last election. I do believe that. But now we'll move on to the next topic of today's episode, which is, we'll, we'll start with Iraq. It begins with Iraq. Specifically, Iraq announcing that it will begin the process of removing U.S. and coalition troops from their country. The office of the Iraqi Prime Minister, Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, he announced that they were planning to evict U.S. forces following the recent U.S. drone attack in Baghdad. (coughs) They said that they'd form a committee to end the presence of the international coalition forces in Iraq permanently. So if you remember, last week we talked about how the U.S. used all these uh, these 100-plus attacks on U.S. troops, because that, yeah, that, that's the narrative they're putting up there. Over 100 attacks on U.S. troops, over 100 attacks. And while we don't like our troops being attacked, it's also, again... Don't put your troops in a place where they're going to get shot at and then complain that you get shot at. Like that's, It's so counterproductive. But, alas, that's sort of the narrative being painted to go to war with Iran because they're saying that all the attackers are Iranian proxies. But they use these attacks on U.S. positions throughout Iraq and Syria to justify this drone strike on in Baghdad against various militias. And now Iraq is responding to that, saying, you just bombed our capital. For reasons? You gotta go. As a matter of fact, it's, you're, you've long overstayed your welcome. You've gotta go. And now they're beginning the process of putting in place procedures to remove the U.S. and coalition forces. I say and coalition because there is other countries there with us, but... Let's be real here. None of them have the, the capability to stay in Iraq without U.S. logistical support. So, they're beginning. It, it be, so it begins, right? Another L... It, it's, like, it's like a landmine. Another landmine has just been placed down with, uh, with an L on it, right? And, and we're already in, in a field a minefield of these L's. And every time we step on one, we explode. But we don't know where they are. We know that they're there. We just don't know when we're going to step on it and it'll blow us up. Taiwan, that one's just been buried. So we we have to be careful. We're going to step on that one and we're going to die. You have Iran, there's a mine. Israel, Palestine, there's a mine. 
That one's blowing up, but in slow motion. You have Ukraine, that one's blowing up, but in slow motion. It's like, at every turn, we are seeing these, these bombs go off. And every time the bomb goes off, imagine we're in a tank, right? Every time one of these bombs, every, every one of these mines go off, it chips away at our armor just a little bit, just weakens it a little bit, just, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, boom, boom, a little bit more, a little bit more. Eventually, we're going to get to a point where the tank just blows up and we can't get through this minefield. We can't get through this minefield. We're just going to get to the point where our tank can take no more and it stops it stops working and either we get out and leave or we go down with it when it blows up when we hit another mine and it blows up that's what's happening and every one of these foreign policy blunders every one of these events taking place where you can see what's going to happen a mile away but you just don't know when you just don't know where exactly it's going to happen that's what that's what these that's what this thing here is reminding me of. This Taiwan, uh, of course, there's uh, Serbia, Kosovo, there's North Korea, South Korea, Ukraine. It's all going to blow. It's like, imagine you're in an office building. You're on the 12th floor, but there's bombs planted on every floor. You don't know where the bomb is. But when those bombs go off, it's just this chain reaction. Boom, 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 boom. And next thing you know, the whole tower's coming down. It's, it's, I, I say a siege, because in the grand scheme of things, that's what this is. The, the empire is being put under siege. And we're seeing yet another besieging army arrive at the gates with Iraq. This is another addition to the siege. That's sort of the best analogy I can make for this, is that the empire is being put under siege. Because now, the Iraqis are seeking to end 20, what, what, 24 years of colonial rule? Well, not 24, it'd be like, like 23. 23 years of colonial rule. They're now trying to end. The Pentagon, on the other side of this, the Pentagon says that the 2,500 or so U.S. troops will stay. How reassuring. They will stay. U.S. Major General uh, Patrick Ryder says that U.S. forces are in Iraq at the invitation of its government. And that he was unaware of any plans by the Iraqi government to remove U.S. troops. Well, if the Iraqi parliament... <laughs> has said that they're going to begin the process of removing your troops. I don't think you can I don't think you can claim that you're there at the behest of their government anymore. Maybe you were there before, but now you're not. Now you're there in spite of the protest of that government. This is a, just it's a ticking time bomb. It's just another ticking time bomb. Uh, we have and we have two thousand five hundred troops in Iraq. Two thousand five hundred troops in Iraq, a couple hundred more in Syria, 
this guy says they're gonna stay. Oh, he's unaware of any uh, moves by the Iraqi government. Even though uh, I remember this a few years back, uh, we covered this in like a rapid fire segment. I remember a few years back reading an article talking about the Iraqi parliament passing a resolution in favor of having U.S. troops withdraw from the country. And we ignored them. And now here we are. So they passed this resolution years ago. And I guess this guy just didn't get the memo. And he's like, well, I'm not aware of any any." attempt by them to remove us even though they passed this resolution years ago and now they're they just passed another resolution to their their parliament saying that they're going to begin the process of removing us i'm not aware of anything i'm not paid to be aware of what the iraqi government is thinking i am paid to keep the laundering operation going that's what this is Uh, I could go on a rant about the status of U.S. military leadership. I'm not going to. It'd be uh, a bit too much for me in my my sickened state. Uh, But that is a very worthy rant to go on. I'll just say that. So I'll just insert. uh, We'll just just pretend that I did a rant. (laughs) We'll just pretend that I did a rant on it. But... I mean, we we literally just talked about that that drone strike last episode, right? Going back to the reason why they're they're forcing U.S. troops out, uh, forcing they're they're going to be very careful about this. Make no mistake, they're going to give they're going to make every attempt to give us no reason to try to turn around and blow up Baghdad again, except this time to overthrow their government because they know that we'll do it if we have the chance. We've done it twice. Two Iraq wars. They know that we'll do it. So they're going to be very slow and very methodical. They're going to bide their time. And when the time is right, all the issues are gone. They will use legal checkmates against us. Similar to how South Africa has used the, the legal checkmate of a genocide trial against Israel, we're, they're going to try to put us into a checkmate situation where we have no choice but to leave. And that's assuming that we do not succeed at getting this war with Iran. In which case, the Iraqis won't need to do that at all. The various militias will do the work for them, taking us out one garrison at a time. Our garrisons are not built to be put under siege. They're built to carry out anti-terrorism operations and uh, pacification operations. They're not there to fight a war. Not anymore. Uh, It's going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. And quite frankly, there's not enough of them to fight that war. Especially if the airspace becomes hostile to us and we cannot resupply them. Which is what would happen if we ended up in a state of war with the entire Middle East over Israel. I'll digress. But we just talked about this airstrike last episode on Baghdad, how these skirmishes are being used to justify war with Iran. We talked about how the more our government agitates for war with Iran, uh, the less Iran is able to restrain its allies in the region, the Houthis, Hezbollah, the militias, Hamas, etc. 
and we talked and we said that if Iran flips, the whole region will flip. But we also talked a few weeks back about how the Houthis in their just them waking up and choosing violence, they showed us the way in which this conflict centered on Gaza will escalate. They showed us how. And it's one independent actor at a time choosing to escalate with no mechanism for or incentive for de-escalation to pull them back. So once they escalate, they just don't de-escalate. They just stay in. And then another one does. And then another one does. And then another one does. And then you have a coalition. Now you have momentum. Now you have pressure to get more countries involved. That's how this could escalate and evolve into a broader war. Not by a, a coalition coming all together and then declaring the war, but by way of a coalition being built up over time from independent actors acting independently, escalating, and then just choosing not to de-escalate because they have no reason to. If, if you start bombing Israeli shipping, what reason do you have to stop? You don't have much reason at all. And who's going to stop you? No one. Because it would be bad publicity for any of the other governments involved. This is how this is uh, going to go. And Iraq now increasingly seems like they're going to be one of those independent actors who act independently. And that's what it's looking like to me. And then on top of that, Iraq is an ally of Iran. Iraq, the actual government, like we, we talk about how Hezbollah and Lebanon are both allies of Iran, but in sort of separate capacities, this, a similar situation plays itself out with Iraq, where a lot of these militias who are aligned with Iran are aligned with Iran in an independent capacity from the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi government is... Oh, in an independent capacity from these militias aligned with Iran. So them being allies with Iran would put, <clears throat> excuse me, them being allies with Iran, if the U.S. ends up in a state, like a state of conflict with Iraq, that would put pressure on Iran to do something because Iraq is their neighbor. They would have to act in some sort of capacity and perhaps that's sort of the angle that these warmongers who want to war with iran perhaps that is the angle that they're trying to push if they can sort of provoke iraq into war by bombing them by killing militias who are iraqi citizens a lot of them are iraqi citizens by bombing them by killing these these militias Saying, uh, uh, say, and sort of just ignoring everything they say and saying that all oh, these militias, they're Iran back proxies, these are Iran proxies, and just creating a diplomatic crisis between us and the Iraqis. Perhaps the play is to get Iraq so worked up that they will, that they'll try something, something like removing the U.S. military presence from the region and from their country, and in the process they can 
have any negative thing that happens and they can frame it as, oh, look, look what the Iraqi government did to our troops. See, the Iraq, this Iran-backed proxy is, is now killing and shooting at U.S. troops. Because if they, if they go up to a U.S. military base and they say, hey, you got to leave, and our troops just say no, any attempt to try to remove the U.S. presence from these bases is without the consent of the troops there is going to result in a, a conflagration. And in the event of a conflagration, a war between the U.S. and Iraq, Iran has no choice but to come to Iraq's aid in some way, shape, or form. First and foremost, through the various militia connections that they have, these proxies, that they are allied with Iran, they would use the influence they have in these uh, militias to back up Iraq, saying, hey, here's some money, here's some weapons, now go kill some Americans to help out Iraq. However, if you're the U.S., looking, looking, actively looking for a war with Iran, you can trace that activity right back to Iran. You can trace the weapons right back to Iran. And you can go, look, Iran put a hit out on U.S. soldiers in Iraq. If you remember that, that one story from a couple, well, back uh, like in 2019 or 2020, when we, they got that story that Putin put a hit out on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Oh, my God. You know, it'll be a similar scandal to that, where it's like, oh, look, the Iranian government put a hit out on U.S. troops in Iraq and paid these militias, these Iran-backed proxies, they paid their proxies to go shoot at U.S. troops in Iraq. Aren't they just so evil? And then you have the war. And, and then there's... Like, I may have just accidentally stumbled upon the, the playbook here. One of many plays that the warmongers can make to try to get this war with Iran going is via Iraq. Iraq has a, a very special place in Iran's heart. <coughs> but that might just be the key. It might just be the key. If you get, you could use Iraq to get at Iran. Because Iran has to has to respond to things that happen in Iraq, why do they have to do? Because Iraq is their neighbor. It's not like it's not like they're they're fighting the Taliban right now. They get into border skirmishes every now and then with the Taliban, but the Taliban do not constitute a threat to Iran, nor does Turkmenistan, for that matter, or Pakistan. Well, Pakistan could if they wanted to, but they don't. Who are the threats to Iran? It's not Azerbaijan. It's not necessarily Turkey. It's Iraq. There's only one border that the Iranians have, because it's certainly not Kuwait. There's only one border that the Iranians have that they would ever need to worry about in today, in the modern age. In today's geopolitical environment, the only border that Iran has to really worry about is the border with Iraq. And their border with Iraq is a border with a country who is under U.S. occupation. Like, the belt of Iranian allies stretching from Iraq to Lebanon is a belt of countries under U.S. occupation. Two out of the three, Syria and Iraq, are under U.S. occupation. If Iraq 
ends up in a situation where they're at war with I, the U.S. over the issue of trying to remove U.S. troops from this country, that would be grounds for the, the bigger war with Iran. And then all the, the, the whole... Oh, the, the, the Iranian proxies, uh, the, the hundred, uh, hundred plus attacks on U.S. troops in the region, all of that just sort of gets built up and added to the narrative. Oh, look, Iran has been trying to use their proxies to remove us from the region. We have to k- cut off the head of the snake, take Iran out of the oil business. We have to bomb Iran. You know, I can see it. I can see it. And so this is uh, yet another danger, yet another another landmine that we run the risk of stepping on. As the empire gets put under siege, we're going to see more and more of this doubling down in war. Because if peaceful coercion is not enough to get your subjects and your vassals to stay in line, if peaceful coercion is not enough to keep them in check, well, that leaves you with military force. And if you don't have the ability to keep everybody in check, well, then you have to use military force on everybody. That's the danger. Like, for all the good that will come from the collapse of this empire on the other side, you have to get to the other side. But the other side, uh, getting there is going to be messy because empires never die peacefully. Empires always go down with uh, quite violently. And our empire... When you when you look at the types of people that our empire is led by, there's there is no peaceful conciliation that's going to happen here. They're not just going to give up their their influence and their prestige. They're not going to give up their their drug trafficking and their sex trafficking. They're not going to give up their money laundering operations in all these countries. They would rather give two hundred plus billion dollars to. I almost said Iraq to Ukraine than to allow Ukraine to fall because then they can't launder money. They need the forever war so they can justify laundering money, so they can justify spending more and more and more on the military every year, even though the threats keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Before it was the, the, the Cold War, the Soviet Union, they're your enemy, the communists. We're going to make the budget bigger and bigger and bigger. Now it's international terrorist men in flip-flops. Uh, China, what's China going to do? They're going to attack Taiwan. And then what? Um, Russia. Well, what, what are they going to do? They, they might attack Ukraine and then Poland and then Belarus and, and then everybody. Uh, okay, how? Uh, shut up. Just give us more money. Like, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. As the empire gets put under siege, as it collapses, as it sort of just gets eaten away at, on all the frontiers, it, these people will double down on war. And they will take every opportunity they can get to try to get a war. One, because they're warmongers, and two, because they, they want to use war to sort of pull the wool over your eyes. Because if you're so... If, if you're so hostile to the other side, you're not going to look at what they did wrong. You're your leaders. If you're blindly hate, hating uh, insert country here, like, say, Putin, if, you're blind, if you have a blind hatred of Putin, you're not going to look at all of the policies that your government undertook 
that got you into the situation where you're in a state of conflict with Putin. You're not going to look at that. And any attempt to do so gets, oh, oh, it's that's he's a Putin apologist. He's he's a Putin apologist. He's a, he's a puppet up to the Putin. Oh, don't look at him. Oh, don't don't listen to him. No, 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 no. Only listen to us, because we're not. We stand for democracy. You know. They can. The only way they can keep you stuck in these rather myopic and shallow boxes of thinking is if you're stuck in an us versus them mentality, if you're stuck in a us, uh, we are at war, therefore our, we have to rally behind our side mentality. If we're stuck in a, yeah, there are evil, corrupt bastard, but at least, at least there are evil, corrupt bastards. So I'm just going to ignore everything the other guy says, you know, it doesn't matter if the other guy's telling me the truth. I'm just going to call him a liar and ignore that everything he tells me he does which is what usually happens when people look at Putin. They're like, uh, well, he's a lot. You, how, you'd be insane to trust Putin more than the president of the United States, even though the president of the United States lies to you religiously and everything Putin says he's going to do, he does. You, in a rational world, you'd be insane not to believe the guy who does what he says he's going to do. You, you'd be insane to believe the guy who lies pathologically. But when you're you're caught up in that us versus them mentality, you will give a pass to the, the pathological liar and trust him and his word over the guy who does what he says he's going to do, who chooses his words carefully. It's a control mechanism as much as it is them trying to keep their power, not just abroad, but at home. That's what these wars are for. Uh, for uh, it's for a number of reasons, money laundering, etc. But power, power abroad, prestige, and power at home. But Iraq, will we will see? They, they're they're making moves to try to push us out of their country. We'll see if this goes peacefully, or if it goes uh badly. If it goes badly, we get the big war with Iraq. If it goes peacefully, thank the Lord Jesus. But we live in 2024, so we have no idea what, what we're going to get here. So, fingers crossed. All uh, Keep your eyes on the ball, people. Uh, we are in uncharted waters and uncharted territory. So, for as good of a development as this ultimately is, do not underestimate the capability and the capacity of the current ruling class in America to make something bad out of this, something really bad. But alas, I will digress. Yeah, but on <clears throat> on to our last segment. I have two stories here. They're sort of small by themselves, but they come together and they paint a, a picture. I had a picture that I'll sort of try to paint as I go along. So we have the Norway, the Norwegian Parliament moving forward with deep sea mining operations now for a second i thought they were i thought they were about to start uh I, you know dropping those explosive mines like the naval mines <clears throat> that's what i thought at first i'm like ain't no way was bombing Nord Stream not enough for you but no 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 uh, this this is the, the good kind of mining uh, you know 
they're talking about resource extraction. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, you have, you have my attention. Because <clears throat> to my knowledge, deep sea mining it wasn't really a thing. <clears throat> it is technically possible. It's just not really done very much. So, and the article said as much. Uh, but yeah, Norwegian, no, no way. Norway has approved the exploration and exploitation of resource deposits sitting at the bottom of the uh, the Barents Sea and the Greenland Sea. There we go. So the Barents Sea and the Greenland Sea. This is the their. I would say they're their west coast, but then they don't. They don't really have an east coast, but you know, out there in like the North Sea, going stretching up to Greenland, obviously. So very large area. Uh, they're they've opened this up to exploration now. I'll just I'll just cut to the J. They've opened this up to exploration. Two hundred and eighty one thousand square kilometers. Now that's sort of the the area we're talking about here. Very big area. Now they're specifically looking to open up mining operations for uh, mineral deposits, not like not like energy resources. They, these are for minerals. And with an operation like this, and and the focus is uh, primarily on rare earths as well. I should add, with an operation like this and an undertaking like this, I can only see the Japanese following as well because. It was uh, a couple years ago they found that massive rare earth deposit off of their coastline, like to the northeast of their country. I believe it was lithium, but I'm not entirely sure. They found that massive rare earth deposit. The practice is, if Norway leads the charge on this, <clears throat> and if they go forward with uh, resource extraction uh, projects out here in the, in the sea, which would be a very excellent way of getting around environmental activism because they, they, they can't just sit, <laughs> they, they can't sit in the middle of the ocean and stop you from drilling. So it, it might also be a way of getting around the domestic issue of people who have subscribed to an ideology that is hostile to economic development and hostile to making their own lives better which is the great paradox, one of the great paradoxes of the green ideology. But by opening up operations in water, mining operations in water, the practices that they use in the process of doing this, because they're going to they're gonna try to do it at scale, these practices are going to be put in place in many other places around the world. Turkey's probably going to have eyes on this, because there's... There's more than just energy deposits in the in the eastern Mediterranean. There's mineral deposits as well. They're gonna have their eyes on this. Japan's obviously gonna have their eyes on this. China's gonna have their eyes on this with their their artificial islands in the South China Sea. They're gonna start tapping because there's a lot of rare earth and energy under the South China Sea as well. Well, I know there's minerals. I I sort of sort of take back the rare earth statements about the South China Sea. I know there are mineral deposits underneath the sea. It is more known for its energy deposits, though, and for the trade going through it. But the Chinese are going to be looking at this. Japan's going to be looking at this. Turkey's going to be looking at this. 
if we're smart, we're going to be looking at this as well. The British, if they're smart, are going to be looking at this as well. Russia's definitely going to be looking at this as well because they have plenty of places offshores, uh, particularly around what will become their new Black Sea coastline when they finish off Ukraine, that they can do these types of operations in and in the Arctic as well, where there's lots of untapped mineral potential. And this is sort of a sort of a, a hallmark moment, a watershed moment in the development of the resource extraction game as human civilization progresses. There are certain technologies and certain practices that are adopted that just sort of change the game in a visible way. This is going to be one of those. Right. And it alludes to another point that I made when I, various, because uh, I can't refer you to this specific episode, but every now and then I'll go on a rant about how people talk about the carrying po- carrying capacity of the earth and how we're just nowhere close to that. Case in point, the oceans, 70% of the earth's surface, untouched by human habitation. We're nowhere, we're nowhere close to the carrying capacity of the earth. We're, the carrying capacity of our technology is what we can reach. We're not even close to the carrying capacity of the earth. Like, we're just now talking about real uh, attempts to mine mineral deposits under the water. Deposits that are going to be equal to or larger than deposits you're going to get on the ground. On solid ground. Which means that it's going to take even longer to exhaust these deposits. Like... And, of course, starting out, it's going to be very inefficient. But as you go, you get better and better at it until you get really good and really efficient at extracting resources. We're only just now talking about extracting resources from the oceans. We haven't even begun conversations about building cities into the water. We're still talking about how we're going to keep the water out of the cities, which is still going to be a a thing even when you have cities on the waters because a city... In the water is built for that. A city on land is built to be a city on land. There's, there are differences, but we're not. We're, we haven't even begun conversations on uh, hydro uh, habitation, habitation on the waves. We haven't even begun to tap the potential of uh, aquaculture, where you're farming in the water. We're, we're not even. T- and there was that one story I saw where the, the Arabs had developed, uh, or they had nurtured a plant whose seeds, when you crush it down into an oil, it's it's jet fuel. They're growing jet fuel. And I'm pretty sure that was an aquaculture, like a, like a special type of kelp that they were using to do that. And it's like, we're not even close to tapping the potential of, the, it's, it's I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this point this moment right here where we're now be getting into serious discussions about mineral and resource extraction of deposits beneath the waves marks a a very important moment in human history where we will now only just now mind you start to tap into the potential of the oceans so 
that's going to open up a whole a whole host of border disputes, international conflicts are going to pop up over the over this and over the resources. It's a new era that we are now sort of slipping. I, I hate to say slipping and sliding into because it's very deliberate. It's a new era that we are now phasing into. And things are going to look very differently on the other side of this. Uh, as we enter into the, this new wave of industrialization, we may see cities on the waves, or at least preliminary, like coastal habitations that are built on the water and underwater. We may see that by the end of this uh, by the end of the century. These hundred these next hundred years are going to see great change, not quite on the scale as what we saw during like the 1900s. Uh, I mean, the 1800s, I should say, but perhaps greater than the scale of what we saw during the 1900s. Uh, and I'll say that much. We're going into a transformational time in human history. And this is the watershed moment that people will look back to. Uh, if, again, if Norway actually falls through with this. But if, this is going to be a moment look back to as the moment when we took that leap, so to speak. So I thought that this was, uh, beyond being just a peculiar story, I thought it has some uh, significance in the grand scheme of uh, human history as we move forward into the future of human history. But there was another story that I saw, because I, I was looking at this and thinking, okay, well, how can we how can we use this? How can we benefit from this? Uh, well, if they're, if they're doing all this mining and extracting of rare earths, well, it's going to benefit he who has the rare earth refining capacity, right? Well... Ooh, maybe we should build that on and, and it got me thinking about that massive lithium deposit we have in the United States and how we can use trade to build up like a demand for our refining capacity as we also use trade through exports to build up demand for the lithium that we have in the Rockies and then you can combine the two to create a domestic refining industry so now you start to create real self-sufficiency of US industry where to where exports and imports of other goods become secondary to the, the usage extraction and exploitation and refining of those resources inside the United States. That's what I was thinking. And then I, and I'm still thinking about that and how we can make that a possibility. But then I saw this story that sort of encapsulated everything that I was thinking about for the United States, but it was China. It was China. And here we have China reaping the rewards of industry because in this other story, it was talking about how a battery manufacturer uh, called INB New Material Technology, uh, that, that's sort of the name of them, uh, they, they are going to be investing $6.4 billion uh, uh, in renminbi, the, the Chinese currency, $6.4 billion. Uh, actually, let me look up how much that is. Um, let me look up how much that is, because uh, I do not know off the top of my head, e even like a, a rough estimation of what the exchange rate is for renminbi, renminbi, <laughs> renminbi, $2. Okay, so it's... Uh, one renminbi is equal to 14 US dollars, uh, not 14, 14 cents, oh my goodness. 
okay so that's the exchange rate here so mm -mm, so we'll take uh 6.4 billion 6.4 billion times that by 0. 0.14 okay so about almost 900 million dollars so almost a billion you know the, the number i had in my head well is it a billion is it a billion? it's a little less than about 100 million less than a billion it's a 894 not 896 million us dollars so still a very big investment and it's not into some tech firm it's not into some startup tech company into an app they're gonna make an app it's this is industry a billion dollar investment into a real factory that's going to produce a real good that's going to be used for real products that you can touch that you can feel so they're these guys are investing a billion dollars into uh a, a, a manufacturing plant in penang which is sort of the, the first manufacturing plant that they've made in the city of penang which is china uh, and this is uh, in the south along the Pearl River. So, yeah, in, in the Shenzhen area where they sort of had all these industrial cities sort of integrate into one another to create a, a super center. Uh, Silicon Valley, except it's, uh, well, China, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah, I saw this and I'm like, wow, the Chinese instead of talking about doing this and doing that, instead of talking about how we we need to invest in renewables and, and electric and, and all this, they have the industry to where it private, private business can just make a billion dollar investment into industrial plant. And now they're gonna be churning out batteries in this new city, in this city that they haven't been uh, producing batteries in before. And the result of this is that they just increased their capacity for building ba batteries. And we're talking like big industrial batteries, like car batteries, what have you, for electric vehicles. They just, uh, they just decided they're gonna do this. Uh, I'm simplifying it, obviously, it's a corporation. So there's a lot more deliberation that goes into this but you compare that to the bureaucracy <laughs> that we get and, and the, the tongue bath that we get when we talk about this, like uh, we, we made a big deal out of, uh, you know, those those uh, chip plants that were being built in Ohio. And it is a big deal for us. All right. Well, like we're, we're very far behind where we should be. But it's just a very interesting parallel to look at where uh, we're so deindustrialized that anything <laughs> is a good is good for us and it takes more money to do mind you because that was a, a lot of money that went into that that's supposed to be going into that uh plant in ohio and i'll see if i can pull up the story now ohio uh chip plant Ohio. Uh, yeah, Intel. Right, right. The, the, the plant that Intel is building. 
now let's see. I'm attempting, yeah, $20 billion project. $20 billion project is what Intel invested into building these uh, chip fabricator plants in Ohio. $20 billion to build that compared to not even a billion by this battery plant uh, to produce, to start manufacturing batteries. And, and this is China. So it's not like, oh, we're going to be manufacturing five a day. No. Oh, we're, we're going to be getting like 15 a week, 25 a month. No, it, this is China, right? Where, where there's real industry. So you're, you're talking hundreds, thousands. It's just going to be ma- real mass production, real economy of scale, real, you know, driving down of the cost of goods through mass production. That's, that's also a very interesting uh, sort of difference to look at the cost structure, because part of the cost is not just the fact that we're building chip fabricator plans, uh, and but it's also that Intel has basically has to build the infrastructure up for this industry uh, from scratch, because we, we don't have it anymore. We don't have it anymore. But the Chinese have such an abundance of that industrial infrastructure that the costs are lower because of the economy of scale. You can set up an industry, you can set up an industrial plant anywhere in China because there's the logistics to support it anywhere in China. It's it's the the end result of the, the positive feedback loop of industry. And China today is in, in many ways uh, a sort of image of what the United States was in like the late 1800s and the first half of the 1900s where we just had that vast abundance of industrial capacity where you could set up a factory anywhere and you could be profitable because you have the, the, the industrial infrastructure to, to do it anywhere in the United States. And I do believe that in time we will get back to that. But for the time being, we can look to China as an example, uh, as sort of a, a, a stand in for what the United States is going to be when we get there. But yeah, I, I went on a small rant a, a couple seconds ago on how, the Chinese invest a billion into real physical products, that, that's what their billionaires are up to, right? Their billionaires aren't up to, oh, let's kill off a half the population. Oh, let's force everybody to take a vaccine. Let's, let's try to get everyone to wear a mask and stay in their homes so they can die. Oh, let's, let's de-industrialize so we can go back to pre-industrial levels of, of human population and, and human habitation on the earth. Let's just kill everybody. It's there's such a difference in philosophy between the 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 Chinese elite, so to speak, and the American elite, which is not necessarily me saying, "Oh, the Chinese, they're they're just so great." Oh my God, yeah. It's just look at how much the 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 kinds of people with power and influence in our country hold us back, because. What China has today is what the United States is supposed to be having. Not that, oh, the Chinese stole it from us and we can steal it back from them. And it's not a zero sum game like that. It's more so we could be China and China can be China and we can both just be industrial titans uh, making everyone jealous of us. <laughs> That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But it's not because we have these people in charge of our country 
controlling the capital in our country, and their agenda is not on the industrialization of the United States. Their sights are not set on making the lives of Americans better. Their eyes are on the prize of depopulation. And it shows. They use their money to buy up all the farmland and buy up all the houses, the single-family homes, so they can build up their real estate portfolios. Screwing over the average person because now you can't buy a home. It... The billionaires in America get in the way of the average person in America. Like the wealth disparity wouldn't be so bad if the wealth was being put towards the betterment of the country through industry, but it's not. It's being put towards building up portfolios and revenue streams, except the revenue streams are not from you producing a product, but from the production of services services and apps and stock portfolios and investments investments into paper assets rather than physical assets and the paper assets only benefit you and the person who owns those assets who who you know the you and the person who sells you the asset you're the, you and the broker of said asset that's the only people them and the banks of course those are the only parties involved who benefit from paper, the owning of paper assets. Regular people don't benefit from a billionaire having a billion dollar stock portfolio. They don't benefit from that. The stock price of Amazon does not benefit regular people. It benefits Bezos. And in that regard, Elon Musk is only a, is a little bit different because his wealth comes from the physical production of electric cars and electric batteries and SpaceX. So he is closer to an industrialist than say Bezos would be. And certain both of them do a, a bigger service to the regular person in America than Bill Gates does. Like granted, look, I love my Xbox. Okay, I, I love my Xbox. Wouldn't be here without uh, Microsoft. But Microsoft does not make like physical products that the regular person is consuming, uh, Microsoft is largely uh, a paper asset thing. That's where their wealth is, in the paper asset from the stock price. Everything is about stock prices, not about what are we producing, how much are we producing, how much are people consuming, right? It's the difference of the types of economies, we have the physical economy and an economy that runs on paper. The economy that runs on paper gets you wealth disparity that builds onto itself in a way that disproportionately benefits people who are already at the top and screws over the people at the bottom. Whereas the physical economy, people succeed and get to the top by providing a real physical good that people can buy. That's how you get wealthy. And that's the way it should be, right? What I, what we have here is the di- is uh, sort of a the difference of the economies and uh that difference is the reason why the Chinese economy can function so seamlessly 
in integrating new technologies and in exploiting every new, you know, ex every new exploitation of every new resource that we find. Because all of it has to go to China. Why? Because they already have the refining capacity. All of it has to go to China. Why? Because the Chinese are the ones who can take the refined product, the refined mineral, and turn it into a finished good. China has all the factories. You're not going to send it to China to get it refined and then bring it back and hope and pray that you can manufacture it into something. You're not going to do that. The Chinese economy is built for to turn physical uh, resources into real goods. It's not just a purely service oriented thing. The US economy has veered away from that and we suffer the consequences of it now. Now, in time, in time with Trump and the right Republicans, <laughs> I see us as we move into this era shift in the United States, we are going to be shifting back towards a physical economy, back towards a gold standard, back towards protectionism, back towards economic policy that makes sense for America to have, and in the process, back towards rebuilding the manufacturing of the United States by reorienting the United States away from a paper asset-driven economy towards a physical product-driven economy. And in that economy, the regular person benefits from the rise of the of every billionaire because you have to buy his product for him to get rich. You have to buy something that you can actually use in your life for the billionaire to become a billionaire. And that's how you solve the wealth gap because you can take that product and you can do whatever you want with it. You could sell it on eBay and make a buck. You can, you can use it. It's not a, a, a asset on a screen that's, you know, out of your reach. No, you get to be in on the economy. You get to benefit directly from the rise of every billionaire. It's just a better way of having your economy function. But it, it's it, that's how a, a sound economy works. But obviously, that's not very conducive towards money laundering and, and imperialism. But of course, MAGA is the antithesis of those things. But... Uh, I, I just, this is sort of a, me going off on a, a tangent about, you know, resource extraction and how to use the resource extraction in your country. And, you know, we can be there and we will be there eventually. I, I just thought that this was a really good opportunity to sort of uh, elaborate on why we will struggle to take advantage of things like this, and even of that massive lithium deposit in our own country, why we will struggle to do basic things like produce batteries and chips, and the Chinese won't. They, they've they built up sort of the, the momentum of industry to where they don't have to worry about that. And we've allowed our industry to decay to such an extent that it takes a national effort just to get a handful of chip fabric fabricators just to get a handful of new factories here and there right so the reindustrialization is going to be a, a bit of a, a rough process but when you have the right kind of an economy an economy based on physical goods that you can that really helps industry because then the industry is focused on production and not stock prices right and when the industry is focused on production 
then you can get real goods and you can push down the cost of those goods through mass production. And then you, you do this, repeat this process over enough goods, over enough raw materials, or over enough services, and you get the economy of scale that brings costs down everywhere. And in the process of the abundance of everything and everything cheap, you get higher standards of living. China, it's not their economy you want to, it's not that we have to become socialists, it's that we need a, an economy centered on physical production. And I thought that this was a very good opportunity to sort of lay that out uh, as a vision of what we can and will be. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've uh, enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I thank you for bearing with me as I'm uh, I'm so congested and I have a stuffed nose and uh, I probably sound disgusting. But look, I thank you for sticking with me. But we've reached the end of the show. So I thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. The world is changing, folks, and we will have fun watching it together. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.